Hello and welcome back to the European Review of History podcast. My name is Dr Ruby Rutter and this is episode four of our digital history series where we've been looking at how technology and digital innovation are influencing our understanding of the past and shaping our practice of history as a discipline. Today I'm joined by Dr Stefan Ramsden, a historian of modern British history and oral history at the University of Manchester, who's currently working as a research associate on a project titled Our Heritage, Our Stories, which is working towards incorporating citizen history into a wider digital archive. So thank you so much for joining us, Stefan. I know I gave the briefest of introductions to the Our Heritage, Our Stories project there, but could you maybe tell us a little bit more and obviously in much better detail? Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me um, to, to do this, Ruby. I'm um, Stefan Ramsden. I'm a research associate on the Our Heritage, Our Stories project. This is a project which is part of the what's called Towards a National Collection. So this is an initiative to capitalise on, on, on digital technologies to make our national collection more linkable uh, and more kind of searchable and more accessible and it's kind of expanding the 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 idea of what we think of as as the national collection so beyond the things that appear traditionally in archives and and museums um so yeah there there are are projects looking at industrial heritage Uh, our own project is looking at uh, kind of community digital heritage so it's kind of rethinking what the national collection is it's using digital technology to um, link some of these disparate collections because at the moment collections they kind of live in you know different catalogues of different institutions don't they and, yeah and they're not always yeah linkable so you're searching for something you, you you're not always led on to the to the other places where these um collections exist so the idea is to use digital technologies to make all this kind of stuff linkable and am i right in thinking that Our Heritage, Our Stories is part of a wider national project. Yeah, so Our Heritage, Our Stories is just one of five what are called discovery projects. So Towards a National Collection is like the umbrella project, but they've funded these these kind of um, smaller projects within that. We're one of those. So even though our project is pretty big, we've got 17 and people working on it, 17 researchers working on it. It's only one of kind of five. Um, so as I said, the other, the other projects are looking at things like kind of maritime heritage, um, art collections, um, industrial heritage. Uh, there's a project looking at um, the John Sloan collections. Um, so, yeah, there are all these different kind of projects within the, the overall project. So. Our project, it's called Our Heritage, Our Stories, and it's about linking together and and finding what we call community-generated digital content. So this is all those websites um, where people collect the the kind of history of their area, perhaps, um, or or maybe the history of their social movement, um, photographs, oral histories, um, digitised documents. They bring all these things together and they, they kind of put them on the internet to, to kind of make them accessible. Um, so it's about how do we bring that into the national collection? Because the idea is basically this is a, a vast treasure trove of information um, about the social history 
of, of the United Kingdom. And it's it's so it's history from below. So it's you know what people have produced themselves without any often guidance from historians or professionals. They've just kind of got an enthusiasm for say the history of the the their local waterway or whatever. And so they've collected everything they can on, on, on that subject and they've put it on the internet. So it's really history from below. And there's so much of this stuff that just doesn't get used or referenced by historians. And, and like when we think about historians, we're not really just thinking about academic historians, although we are thinking about academic historians. We're thinking about family historians, community historians, or all kinds of historians, really. And how can they kind of use this material, get hold of it, search it, link it to other kinds of material? So we're, we're kind of developing technological solutions to that. So our heritage, our stories, it's again broken down into these kind of work streams or labs they're called um there's an ai lab so artificial intelligence lab they're looking at how you can spot this community generated content in the wild so you know doing machine learning training a computer i don't know if it's a computer or a piece of software or but they're training um computers to be able to spot this material so so when you search say something on the history of remploy which is the um the, the, the factories that uh, employ disabled people in in post-war britain it, if you put that into the product that we eventually create you will not only find things in the national archive collections and in institutional collections but it was, will also detect um, community generated content in the wild so you know any any um, oral history projects that people have done any digital archives that people have put together themselves it will kind of find those and bring them to you, you know, rather than going through google which will just bring you all kinds of stuff and it, it won't be relevant so it's it's about developing ai that can that can kind of do that and bring this stuff in to the collection and then yeah link it to other things in in institutional um archives my main takeaway from that is how useful a tool like this would have been when I was writing my PhD because there were so many times where I was researching a particular woman and the only sort of scholarly work that had been done on her was in some really obscure pamphlet from 1936 that was not in any library in the UK and maybe there were only three printed or something like that. The rest of the information was either scattered across archives or just didn't exist at all and then someone who has managed to get hold of the pamphlet or who has managed to go to the archives has pulled together this information and has put it on the internet as, you know, a blog in a passion project or as part of, a you know, an ancestry family tree. So they have done it outside of the institution, but it's nevertheless incredibly valuable information, you know, like birth dates, death dates, how many children did they have, all of this stuff that you can tease out and build a timeline of a person's life on which you can pin other sources and other information that you have but I always felt like there was a sort of grey area around citing these sorts of sources and whether it would be viewed as proper history so to speak because it is as you say community generated content rather than content that's been created in association with a university um, but it takes effort it takes time it takes skill so having a, a database where this kind of content and the more traditional historical sources are presented next to each other just feels like a, a sort of natural fit 
No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it, it's it. Yeah, it, it's bringing in that research that goes on in communities, you know, away from the institution. Um, yeah, it's often not research. It's often kind of more raw sources in a way. You know, you know it, it photographs. It's often digitized documents and things. It's often oral histories. I mean, that, that that's that's the thing that I have a, an interest in because my background is in kind of oral history research. But so many of these. Um, community websites hold a lot of oral history that 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 seems to be a thing that um that people have been collecting over the past sort of 20 to 30 years and, and digitizing um it's very very rich material you know te textually and and informationally very very rich but it just doesn't get used you know as you said you you found this some of this stuff really useful in your own research it's really interesting, actually, because a lot of what you're saying reminds me of the conversation that I had with Heidi Twarek in our very first episode in this series, when she was talking about a module that she sets for her students where they have to go away and find a person or a topic or an event that hasn't already got a Wikipedia page, and then they have to write it and research it and, and upload it. And she was saying that one of the big takeaways that her students get from this project is how few sources there often are on people or you know events that are quite important but have maybe just slipped under the radar or are maybe only sort of important to a local geographical area or perhaps that you know it's a woman journalist from the 30s who created this brilliant work but because she wasn't a white man her work didn't get sort of fair acknowledgement or, or recognition during her lifetime and so I suppose when when you're collecting this community generated content, there must be a real feeling of bridging that gap or, or you know, unearthing voices that, that haven't previously been prioritized. And I suppose that's a really democratizing feature of of both this project and obviously the, the work that others like Heidi are doing in changing the way we do history. I think absolutely. Yeah. The idea, one of the strong kind of motivating ideas behind it is basically bringing in a wide range of voices, you know, much wider range of voices that ends up in the archives, as, as you've kind of suggested. Yeah, you know, people struggle to create a biography of um, you know, such and such a person, maybe a, a famous local music producer or something. You'd struggle to find the sources for that, wouldn't you? But with this community generated digital content, you can you can get the sources. Um and it, yeah, it's people talking from way outside of the kind of existing historiography as well. Sometimes, I mean, you know, the example that I sometimes give or that I've been thinking about is um, there's a website called African Stories in Hull and East Riding, and it's about African people who've lived in this in in this very kind of rural area in many ways, an area that's not really associated with with immigration or, or, or with black residents, but actually. Um, Gifty Burroughs, um, the, the the lady who kind of leads the project, she'd grown up as a black person in the county, and you know she was looking for other people with her experience because it was quite there weren't many people like herself around. So she she started this project, found lots and lots of stories, and you know, there was lots of lots of material there that nobody had ever really thought about, and you know a lot of the histories focus on areas where um, there were there were big black communities, say. Um, you know, Birmingham or, or, or London. And, and the experience of, of people living in kind of small town England had never been examined in the same way. But through this community project, there's, there's a lot of evidence that's been created 
about this kind of neglected experience, I guess. So yeah, it, it brings in, it it makes the history wider, doesn't it? It makes it richer, uh, bringing in these different voices. Yeah, so that, that, that's, a, that's a big motivation behind the project, really, to, to recognise that people are producing their own histories and we should take notice of those. And yeah. to bring in you know, different parts of the UK as well. The, um, you know, we want this to be a real United Kingdom project, not just a... I mean, you know, a lot of British history tend to be end up being predominantly English, don't they? But we want this to be about Northern Ireland, about Scotland, about about Wales. Really, yeah, bring bring everything in, bring the bring the margins in, bring every every voice in. Yeah, that's the motivation behind it. it really, is the kind of history workshop approach, the, the the history from below approach, and responding to what people in the communities are already doing. You know, it's it's not us going out and kind of creating evidence it's like people are already telling these stories and they're excited about the stories and, and we just want to bring them in and, and and make them findable to all kinds of historical researchers so yeah it's about the de- developing the technology to kind of make those links really and i suppose to give it a, a platform or give it some priority or a space where it can really you know come to the fore and and people can use it and and can develop it and, and build on it yeah yeah because so much of this stuff it's fantastic but it just doesn't get used it doesn't always make it into the the mainstream histories that we watch on television or we read in our books it doesn't quite make it in there does it but if you can find ways to to search it and find it then you can bring it into the mainstream so it's about that really just giving it that push that that people can find it yeah absolutely and is there anything in particular that you're looking at or focusing on with this project I've been brought into the project because I do have this background in oral history, in in contemporary British history, and and a lot of the content that we're finding is, you know, it's contemporary. It's it, it's kind of post-war British history. It's people remembering their neighbourhood. You know, some of it goes back further than that, but there is a preponderance of material on the, on the later twentieth century, um, from the Second World War onwards, really. Um, so yeah, yeah. So so so. That, that's kind of my, my expertise. I mean, I, I, I have researched um, post-war history of, of working class cultures. I was looking at um, how affluence affected cultures of community. Um, and I did this through a case study of a small town in East Yorkshire, you know, looking at places that, that are kind of marginalised and that you don't really often read about, you know, what was happening there. We, we, we sort of know what was happening in some of the, the bigger cities sometimes, but we don't know what was happening in these kind of marginal places. Um, so, yeah, you, using a case study approach, lots of oral histories, um, thinking about how did communal cultures change across kind of the, the, the mid 50s to the to the early 70s this era that we call the the, the age of affluence you know people's life um styles changed people bought homes um people could afford to go on holidays things, things changed a lot in that in that part of the century um yeah things are now going backwards again aren't they by, by the sounds of it but, um yeah so that was my research so so i've got expertise in 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 oral histories uh Kind of history from below, community history. I worked in museums previously to that, um, so I've worked with lots of community groups, and and this is kind of the ethos of the project in a way. You know, a lot of the material is oral history. A large part of the the project is working with community groups, you know, to kind of um, create this um, this kind of wider 
community of practice, we call it. So we want to link some of these groups that make, that generate digital content with researchers, with historians, get them talking to each other, get them around a table. So there's a there's a kind of community work element to it as well. But yeah, that, so, so my specific role in the project is to kind of facilitate some of those links, bring bring people together. It's also to research some use cases or, or case studies just to show what you can do with this material. How how can we use this to write um, histories of modern Britain? Um, so, yeah, I'll be working on these case studies, working up things relating to really the, the, the social and cultural history of late 20th century Britain. So, yeah, we're just kind of finalising which exact case studies I look at because we need we need this kind of spectrum of things. So I'll be stepping outside of my um, you know, existing research experience and maybe looking at a few new areas and just 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 suggest beginning to suggest how how could we use community generated digital content if it was easily searchable and, and linkable? How could we use it to kind of ask new questions and, and, and write new histories of modern Britain. So that, that that's my task, really. Are you able to reveal which case studies have made this shortlist or are you still, is it still a work in progress? At, at the moment, we're, we're still developing them. It's kind of an iterative. Areas that we're interested in are um, cultural memory of, of the Second World War, because a lot of these sites concentrate on on nearly every site has got some second world war memories on it and there's an awful lot of stuff it's such a huge story in, in british cultural history isn't it and british identity that that, that it kind of looms large in, in in a lot of this material so yeah how do how do people remember through um community digital archives that the, the second world war and how has that changed and how is that developing still um present so that that's that that'll probably be one case study um well we'd like to look at stories that are kind of emblematic of late 20th century british change so 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 the the kind of movement for um disability rights is quite interesting and in that there are there is quite a lot of cgdc as we call it community generated digital content on on that um subject so that's something we'd like to look at We'd like to do a local case study just because a lot of this material is kind of local and it's very relevant to kind of community historians and things. How can we how can we develop a kind of local case study? So we're thinking maybe the Shetland Islands. That was just one idea because there is material relating to that. And there is this trend in in modern British historiography to revisit sites where there was a, a kind of sociological um, research study in the past so that this idea that you go back to a place and you, you kind of restudy it and look at how things have changed and the Shetland Islands was the site of a study by Anthony Cohen who was actually working at University of Manchester at the time he was an anthropologist and he came up with this idea about how um, communities kind of symbolize their own identity through kind of rituals and things that that, that everybody can buy into but everybody thinks about differently so when communities are changing they kind of they still have these customs, but everybody kind of understands them in a different way. But they're flexible enough that everyone can still understand how they belong to that, that entity. So yeah, he did this famous study about that. So it would be interesting to look at the see the, the community-generated digital content from that area and see how it thinks see how things have changed since that study. So that that would be the local case study. And so I suppose this study will then inform how these communities view their identities now and and will build on 
build on that that previous work and, and sort of show a picture of, of a developing community or a developing culture hopefully yeah 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 hopefully i mean it's it remains to be seen what's available in the in the material the, the, these are ideas at the moment and it's we can only we can only do what's yeah what, what what's available in the material basically we'd like to do something to do with um post-war migration to britain because that's that's a huge story yeah of ongoing and and, and vital interest um in post-war british history so we'd like to do something connected to that and there is quite a lot of material on on on, on that we're sort of looking at six we want six case studies all together so we yeah you know, we're sort of developing those at the moment um so quite a varied varied spread then yeah and and ref- and and responds to what is actually out there so we you know a lot of it is surveying what's out there and where, where are the clusters of kind of you know research and, and content basically what people what do people seem to be interested in and what are they talking about can we reflect that really and that's quite interesting in itself really to kind of track people's interests in in certain areas and, and I guess that that goes on to inform uh, you know local cultures and again speaks to local identities what people prioritize and, and how people understand the places that they live yeah no abs- absolutely yeah and, and yeah sometimes you, you really can't do that through this material because you've got you know older established websites and then you've got newer sites coming in um well this is probably more of an oral history question than to do with the project specifically but how do you deal with memories changing so if someone's you know thinking about their time as a child during the war that may not you know reflect how things actually were their perception might not marry up with the facts um is it that their memory itself sort of becomes a historical artifact in that we can look at the emotions that are tied to that and and sort of understand why someone might remember an event or a person in a certain way or is it more of a problem or a more of an obstacle that needs to be overcome in a sort of wider search for truth yeah i mean that that is how scholars tend to use oral history now as a kind of memory artifact um, rather than as for recovery of a fact in the past. That, that's how we tend to use it now and and yeah life stage is is a really important part of that and there's quite a few famous studies um alistair thompson is is a kind of pioneer in this who's, who's looked at the way he's alistair thompson interviewed somebody across the life course so over about he interviewed somebody over about 30 years the same person and he, he looked at how um he was an australian anzac and he looked at how his the way that he related to his memories of the first world war really changed according to his life context he was kind of he, the memories were quite shameful to him almost early on he, he couldn't really relate to the big national celebrations the Antac day and as the, as the kind of years went on he, he he got a different understanding he was able to kind of frame them his his memories in the context of his kind of radical politics and he, he came to a different understanding of his memories so it's very it's, it's interesting that people people's memories do change you can relate that to their both their own biography but also um wider cultural trends as well so memories almost sort of act as souvenirs of experience, I suppose, that you can revisit them and, and maybe some of the meaning is lost is over time or maybe something is heightened depending on where the person is in their life at the moment that they're recollecting a past event and 
things that are maybe not significant to them that were not significant when they were ch- children is more significant now and that, and that's the, the part of the memory that sticks out yeah absolutely yeah people people recast their memories for changing times yeah, for, for for new audiences for for new understandings of the past they will they will recast the memories to, to to concentrate on something different so memory's really evolving and and, and kind of a fluid thing um so yeah his oral historians have done a lot of work really kind of nuancing those understandings of, of what an oral history interview is you know, when people started doing oral history in the 60s and 70s recording it it was it was oral history was seen as radical because you were simply recovering the voices of people who never got to got to speak and it still is it still is radical for those reasons but the 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 practice of oral history and the theory of oral history has developed so that you know now we can do even more with it and we can say well you know how does memory change how does it respond to to wider culture in the wider society that's really interesting i mean i my research focuses on country houses and there's a lot of oral history from you know old servants or children who you know grew up around the house when when the family was still living there and you get, you know, anecdotes or stories that become law, like ghost stories and all these different embellishments that have probably been left out of history books because it's, you know, handed down word of mouth. Um, but really that information is telling us a lot about that person's experience of that place, of their community, of their social group, and all those things that add up to how we understand a place and a community and a culture as a whole. Yeah, and you you get in those kind of wider local stories as well. Like you know, you'd say the ghost stories, but that that can be quite an important kind of local piece of law, as you say, can't it? It's you know, it's important in itself whether or not you believe in ghosts, isn't it? But you know, and and, and could be analysed for its kind of symbolism, or or yeah, could be analysed in any number of ways, couldn't it? Absolutely, and I think it's just part of the condition of being human. Like it's. What's nice about this project is that even though you're dealing with digital technology, which seems very scientific and, you know, facts and data, but by incorporating these other stories, you're allowing the the human element, the experience of of the past to, to shine through. So, you know, with a ghost story, whether you believe in ghosts or not, the fact that there is a story and that someone believed it does influence how people understood and experienced that place I mean it, it reminds me of my granddad always talks about um when he was growing up there was a, a, a wood nearby that him and his friends used to go and, and and play in and there was I think it must have been like a little Tudor cottage or something that a woman lived in probably just minding her own business but they all thought that she was a witch <laughs> and so he was you know convinced that this was like a satanic wood and that there were all these kind of like witchy spells and things going on in there whether that represents the fact that, you know, he was it was probably about seven during this time, so it would have been during the Second World War or just after, so perhaps there was this that was his kind of childlike way of processing this kind of, like, threat on your doorstep or, you know, sort of scary thing that you, you can't control as a child, or maybe he was just sort of reading lots of fairy tales or something like that. But it really speaks to where they were in their cultural setting, in their social setting, and how important it was to their way of understanding and exploring that place. 
yeah, as you say, where where have they got those ideas from? You know, where, where, what's what's going on in the wider culture that that kind of makes them express their ideas in that particular way? And yeah, it's it's all it, it, it's all grist to the cultural historian's mill, isn't it? Basically, these these and they're all there in the CGDC, as we call it. I've been listening to a really interesting podcast. Actually, it's called um, Bogot and Banshee. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but they talk about not necessarily oral histories, but people experiencing ghosts and fairies and things like that. And they really kind of dissect why people might have been thinking this or, or why they might have viewed a certain incident in, in a supernatural, paranormal way. And it is really interesting because there's no reason for us to disregard those stories just because we have personal belief that this thing couldn't have happened because it tells us so much more about our culture and society or their culture and society. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, yeah, his, historians will obviously one day probably have a lot to say about, um, or they probably already do have a lot to say about the kind of UFO craze, won't they? The, the, and, and the fact that stories of alien abductions kind of appear at a particular point and a particular place that, you know, this tells us a lot about the psychology of populations, doesn't it? And yeah, I think that the the BBC in their People's War project in I think it was between two thousand three and two thousand six they, they 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 encouraged people to record their stories of of the Second World War, and they made this kind of editorial decision. They they had to decide whether they were going to fact check it all, or, and they realised that. No, because it, 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 it's the way people tell the stories. It's it's what matters to them about their memories that's actually interesting. You know, it's not not a case of fact checking. And I think, yeah, that that's how most people now would think about it, isn't it? Um, but yeah, in in two thousand three, you know, we were maybe on the cusp of that kind of idea, weren't we? You know, people's stories they're not just useful for what they tell us about what happened. They're useful for what they thought about what happened as well yeah absolutely and and how do you think that this project will handle these questions of truth and accuracy versus experience or memory do you think they'll need to be a, a guide or instructions as to how to access these sources i mean i know it's very much in its infancy so these these things maybe haven't been ironed out yet we, we haven't thought about that actually but it, it yeah it's it's interesting isn't it because we're going we're going to be presenting people eventually through a search engine um which is part of the national archives discovery um kind of search facility we're, we're going to be present so people will will search in there for as i say rem, maybe remploy um something specific they will be given archival sources alongside community generated sources and that kind of implies a kind of similar status in a way doesn't it which i think you have a similar status but but you probably have to ask different yeah you'll have to ask different questions of each one won't you because one is a curated collection where we can be reasonably we, we, we can't always be confident of what the sources say can we There's lots of lies in the in the national archives but we can be confident that the catalogue tells us what the thing is you know because professional curators following various um guidelines have, have, have constructed the the catalogue haven't they so we, we know more or less this is what they say it is but with with the community generated content it's very different and and we may be 
you know we may be looking at an oral history that's been heavily edited but we don't know because no one, no one tells us it's been heavily edited so we, we, it, there's a lot of extra care that you need to take with using that material not 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 necessarily detecting whether people are making things up but just is is the material up yeah so just just providing a bit of extra extra context so for example if my granddad's testimony of the the witch's house in the woods popped up um maybe just something that says there wasn't you know a, a satanic panic in the middle of leafy hertfordshire but this was just how children were viewing things and you may con- contextualizing it within you know the, the second world war and building a wider picture of of where society was at at the time rather than you need to read this as direct evidence of of witchcraft but then i suppose that's that's the same with with most sources yeah it's difficult isn't it because the the con the, the volume of the content is going to be so great I'm not going to be able to editorialize it i don't think so yeah i mean yeah it might be necessary to provide i mean the national archives are very good at this aren't they they provide all kinds of subject guide and it might be good to to provide a um a subject guide for community generated content and say that this this content is fantastic for all these reasons these are some of the things that you might have to ask when you when you're using it i think it would have to be at a more general level like that i don't think it will be it, it just will i just know it'll be impossible to kind of editorialize the whole collection because i think the idea eventually is that as i say this this ai robot goes and finds the stuff and brings it back so it's, it's kind of learning all the time it's like saying well this might interest you because our, our algorithm tells us it's got these things in so yeah so it's more like that really so it, it's there's a lot for us all to learn as historians isn't there about how to handle digital sources and and digital sources of all kinds and it's you know i've read some somebody making the the point somewhere that it's it's a it's a little bit equivalent to when oral history came in and all, all the suspicions of, of oral history um and the way all historians had to kind of develop arguments to say, well, this is just like any other source in a way, but it, you know, it's different. It requires uh, different kind of methodological questions to be asked, but it's just as valid. And this will have to be done for the community-generated digital content. I think it will it will require some thinking through, and yeah, and it won't be accepted straight away. We'll, you know, part of, I guess part of what we're doing in this project is showing how we might use it, what, what the problems are, how how you might get around those um, methodologically. Yeah. It sounds really, really great. And I think it'll be an awesome project once it's finished. And, and hopefully, like you say, it's another sort of developmental step towards how we view, use, you know, interpret historical sources and, and, and what we can get out of them when we're when we're looking at the past. It's a it's a voyage into the unknown for all of us in a way. We know what we know what the problem is and and what some of the tools might be, but we don't really know what the end product is going to look like. It's supposed to be an exploratory project. It's called a discovery. Project. So we are, yeah, hoping to discover some. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really really fascinating discussion. Um, did you want to tell people about where they might be able to find out a bit more about the project or about your work in general? Yeah, I mean, we've got a project website, which is Our Heritage, Our Stories. It's ohos.ac.uk. So that's fairly easy to remember. There's a project Twitter as well, 
handle is at OHOS underscore Nat Cole. So that's short for National Collection. Um, so, yeah, as long as Twitter's still running, we'll be, we'll be putting stuff up there. Um, in terms of my work, there is... I am on the project. I am on the um, Manchester University website. So, if you put Stefan Ramsden, University of Manchester, then there's a kind of blurb on my research on there. Brilliant, thank you. And I will leave links to everything in the show notes below. So, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Ruby. That's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European Review of History podcast. Links to all relevant websites, articles and our contributors' social media handles are listed in the show notes, along with more information about the journal.